0: Today, on Doomed! The podcast heads to Brooklyn. On this episode of Doomed, we're talking with Isaiah James, who is primarying Yvette Clark in New York 9 in Brooklyn, New York City. We've had a slate of progressive challengers all throughout NYC on this week, and Isaiah will be our first to let us know, you know, how has campaigning changed in the borough of Brooklyn in the age of the coronavirus? And we'll talk about his race, his challenger, well, his, the incumbent he's challenging, I should say, and much, much more. Uh, without further ado, let me pull up myself and Isaiah on the feed here. Isaiah James, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me,
0: man. Now, I am so happy you could join me tonight. And, you know, we have some stiff competition on the live streams because Donald Trump's back to rallying, baby. He's back in action. (laughs) And apparently right now he is uh, holding, uh, they're cheering him for drinking a cup of water with one hand. I don't know if you've, you've known this whole thing where he's had trouble drinking water at his speeches with one hand, which I don't even—I mean, it's just the thing is these, this guy talks about at his rally. He's he's mocking the uh, the media for making a whole, whole thing about him walking down uh, the ramp at at the event when he was—I don't even know anymore. But my point is, thank you for joining me tonight.
1: <laughs> Again, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad we could—you uh, know—I'm glad you reached out and we could make this—you know—come together. I know our schedules are insanely busy right now, so it's right. a pleasure to be here.
0: You were just telling me about, you know, your 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 day just today. So why don't you run through that for people? Well, actually, why don't you first let people know uh, who you are, why you're running, and who you're running against?
1: Okay, so I don't know if you hear the noise outside, but there's a bunch of fireworks going on. <laughs> it's going on, like, literally outside my front door. So... I'm Isaiah James. I'm 33 years old. I'm an organizer, activist. I'm a disabled veteran. You know, I got two tours to Iraq and one tour to Afghanistan, got blown up, got disabled and uh, got retired from the military. You know, and then when I came home, I started to, you know, work with other veterans who were having the same issues, you know, that I was having. And seeing that, you know, our local elected officials weren't really paying attention to them or anybody else in the community. So, you know, in that activism work, I actually met with the woman that I'm running against over a year ago on some very salient issues around, you know, housing and criminal justice. And it was like she was just intransigent. She didn't want to move. It was almost like she was insulted that somebody would actually question her or, or sit in her office and ask her to do more. You know, and I could see that either she didn't know what was going on, which is a bad look for a congressional representative, or she just didn't give a damn what was going on, which is even worse look for congressional representatives. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to be the change that I want to see in my community. So that night I went home and I Googled how to run for Congress and literally watched a bunch of YouTube videos and and figured it out. And like, all right, so I know how to get this thing started. And a year later, here I am sitting talking to you.
0: Hell yeah, man, I love to hear that. I mean, that's that's how it should be. Enough of these, like you know, career politicians who already know the whole process in terms of like who they have to curry favor from to get the you know this endorsement or that endorsement or just already have the paperwork ready to ready to go because an aide prepared it for them or something like that. This is this is how it should be. People doing the work to, to and just running. Also, it shouldn't be. You shouldn't even have to watch multiple YouTube videos. It should literally be something so simple as a click of a button fill in some information and you should be able to run.
1: You you would hope you would think so, but it's a very convoluted and complicated process, you know that. You gotta get stuff from the IRS and stuff from different banks and stuff from, you know, it's it's a very convoluted process. It shouldn't be that lay, way, but they make it so that the layperson will just be so disheartened with the whole process they'll right. walk away from it.
0: Right, right. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the incumbent uh Yvette Clark because, you know, uh Viewers of this show know that uh, this past week, I've had a bunch of um, progressive uh, candidates who are primary incumbents this year in New York. And in fact, uh, it's pretty much been a whole brand new Congress slate. And they've also endorsed uh, you. And, you know, one thing that was interesting to me uh, is that, you know, there, there are candidates like, for example, Gregory Meeks, I'm sorry, incumbents, for example, like Gregory Meeks, Who's like a democratic leader people in the you know most Democrats I would say know who representative meeks is uh but then there's for example uh representative Caroline Maloney in Manhattan who I think most people wouldn't know who she is just by her name because she doesn't really make herself you know out there and known, and I think that's a problem you know if you're a, if you're a representative, people should know your name because you should done enough for people to know your name i mean to me, I, I, no, no, one, no one politician can, can make change, but any one politician can use their bully pulpit to, to make things known to the public. So if people don't know who your name is, to me, that's a real problem. And I'm not all that familiar with Yvette Clark's name. Well, I mean, I am because I, you know, I, I'm in this world. But I would say most you know, lay people aren't that familiar with her.
1: Well, that's the thing. That's what they do. You know, so for Yvette Clark, she hides under the radar because she doesn't get anything done. But she is a corporate politician like all the rest. You know, she takes 97% of her donations from corporate tax. Literally, the worst of the worst, the Bank of America, the Black Rocks, the fossil fuel companies, all that stuff. And meanwhile, our community is one of the poorest communities in, in New York, in the country. And the same entities that she takes money from are responsible for the problems that we see here today. She takes money from the military-industrial complex. We have eight recruiting stations in this district. She takes money from fossil fuel companies, and we have some of the highest levels of asthma and pollutants in our community. She just skates under the radar. You said it right. You don't know who she is. or you know because you're in this world, but most people don't know who she is, and that's a problem. Everybody should know the congressional representative, because the congressional representative should be in the community every single chance they get, instead of showing up every two years, taking a photo op, and then leaving and going back to Washington to rub elbows with the lobbyists. That's the problem, not just with Yvette Clark, but with Gregory Meeks, with most of the New York City delegation, with most of corporate Democrats in America, is the fact that corporate Democrats and Republicans take the same money from the same people. And those people don't care who's in office. They don't care if you have a D or an R behind your name. All they care is they have access to whoever's in office. And until we break this system, break this cycle, until we get a critical mass of actual everyday people-powered progressive campaigns to the federal government, we're never going to be able to change anything.
0: Now, what what do you think... Uh, you know, Yvette Clark's, you know, you just mentioned a a ton of, but what, what, you know, for for people who aren't that familiar with her, what are her biggest issues in terms of, you know, what does she stand for? What has, how how has her voting record been? Um, What are, you know, what are some of the great reasons to not support Representative Clark?
1: Her voting record has been lock stock in two barrels with the same corporate Democrats. You know, she just voted for the the, the National Defense Authorization Act, which, you know, gives the military hundreds of billions of more dollars. It gives Trump hundreds of billions of more dollars. It gives surplus equipment to our police forces. She just voted for these things. So she says she's for Medicare for all. One, that term has been co-opted. What the hell does that even mean anymore? We need to be clear. I'm for single payer health care. She says she's for Medicare for all that she takes hundreds of thousands of dollars from the pharmaceutical industry. She says she's for unions, that she takes thousands of dollars from union-busting companies. She's passed no legislation, she's done nothing. She's done absolutely nothing. It's the reason why our community is in the situation that it's in. You know, Republicans, at least they bring pork barrel back to their districts. We don't even have that here. We have gentrification, we have skyrocketing rent prices, we have failing hospitals, we are over-policed, there are drugs in our community, People who built this community can't even afford to live in it anymore. And meanwhile, all she says is give me another two years and it'll get better. That's the definition of insanity. We keep sending these people back to office and expect them to do something different. And we keep getting the same thing over and over again. And obviously what we've been doing the last 50, 60 years has not been working, as is evident by the situation that we're in today.
0: Right, right. I just want to to read this comment, actually, from uh, Alan B in the YouTube live stream chat. I proudly voted for Isaiah James today. So there you go. I mean, you know, people are voting. I want people to know that right now there is early voting in New York. Uh, You can't request an absentee ballot anymore. But if you have one, you can still send it in. And, of course, June 23rd is the New York primary. Um, You know, I I will say this. You know, uh, months ago when these decisions were made, uh, people were really worried about going out and voting on primary day. And obviously it's good that we've done things to alleviate how many people go out on primary day. But New York and New York City specifically at this point in June, I would say people are taking this so seriously, the coronavirus so seriously and and taking it so well that I would say if you can't early vote, if you don't have an absentee ballot, wear a mask, you know, go out there with hand sanitizer. And I would say it's pretty safe probably to vote in New York City right now. Rest of the country, I don't know. But New York is handling this really well right now at this point in time. So I want to make sure everyone goes out there and votes no matter what. You know, don't worry about, uh, you know, uh, everyone's taking it seriously in New York. With that being said, why don't you tell us a little bit about New York 9? What in, what, what areas in Brooklyn are in that district?
1: Okay, so this district, believe it or not, it's wholly encompassed, encompassed inside of Brooklyn. It's the only congressional district in New York City that is inside of, you know, one borough. So we have all kinds. We have Park Slope. We have at Bay. We have Midwood. We have Flatbush. We have East Flatbush. Prospect, Lenford Gardens, from Atlantic Avenue by the Barclays Center, all the way down to you know the Atlantic Ocean. You know we have it stretches. It's it's even a little bit of Brownsville is in the district. So it's a it's a it's a very eclectic district. We have a very big Hasidic population, a large from population. 50% of the community is African-American. We have an Eastern European population. We have the affluent parts in Park Slope, and we have you know, the poor parts in Crown Heights and Flatbush and the working parts of each Flatbush. You know what I mean? So it's a very, very, it's, it's a microcosm of New York City in itself. It's just a, a collection of folks. And most of folks in this district are hardworking people. But like I said earlier, they just can't get ahead. And it's not because they're not working. It's because the system is rigged against them. Yeah, I mean, we have every, new, every day there's a new high-rise going up, but there's also, when that goes up, it puts people out of their apartment. We see Wall Street keeps getting bailed out, but Americans are supposed to, and people in this country are supposed to get by on a $1,200 stimulus check. I mean, that's what I'm talking about when I say the system is rigged against them, and Yvette Clark voted for that. I mean, it's time to have Democrats stand up for the principles we believe in. If Republicans can shut down the damn country because they didn't like the black guy in the White House, Democrats need to grow a damn spine and stand up for working people, poor people, black people, and marginalized communities. Because again, whatever we've been doing for the last hundred years has not been working.
0: How have the people in that district? Because from what you explained, it's it sounds like to me it's you're you're you know I, I can guess how how the coronavirus has affected your district specifically but let me hear hear it from you you know as someone who's been on the ground and has seen it with your own eyes you know how has the coronavirus affected the people in new york nine
1: so well in new york Nine, we admittedly have one of the highest death rates in the city Right. right here in central brooklyn because our community hospitals have been defunded all of the folks in our community are those essential workers that now everybody praises they are the ones who stocking the shelves cleaning the hospitals Driving the buses, driving the trains, sweeping up the trash on the street—those are the people. It's a working-class community, and it's—it's it's hit this community, it's ravaged this community really, really hard. I mean, right around the corner from my from my apartment, there's literally like three COVID testing centers. They literally shut down the entire street, shut out on the whole block. That's how bad it was. All night long, all you heard was ambulances. All two, all right. three, four in the morning, all right. ambulances all night long. And literally, we were one of the hardest-hit communities. That's not by accident. Right. Manhattan didn't get as hard as it was. That happened Staten Island. didn't get as hard as it This happened on purpose because the resources were not funneled into this community because we're a community of color. We're working-class community. We're a poor community. So they're not going to funnel the resources in here. It took two weeks to get a COVID testing site in my district. Two weeks after we shut everything down. I, me and my wife, we went around and tried to get tested. There was no sites anywhere, nowhere in central Brooklyn. Now they're here because everybody, the eyes of the city have now turned to central Brooklyn. Like, what the hell's going on over there? But this stuff should, we don't need leadership that's going to be reactionary. We need leadership that's going to be proactive to head these things off at the pass so we don't have, you know, thousands of people dying, my neighbors in this district.
0: Right. I remember, I live in an area of Queens, which is the hardest hit in uh, Queens. Uh, And I remember that. when the COVID testing sites started opening up, I remember our city councilman had to specifically ask, request that Andrew Cuomo open up a COVID testing site in Flushing, Queens. And I remember thinking, are, you had to ask for that? That sounds like something that should be built in. Like the idea that the hardest hit areas in each borough weren't just automatically on their minds. And we know why, like you just said, these are uh, working class you know, uh, mostly minority communities. And they they basically are are an afterthought, regardless of the fact that during a pandemic, these were the people who got hit the hardest. It's just, it's mind boggling. It
1: really is. We see this all across the country. We've seen Congress not give a damn about poor people and working people and black people and marginalized communities for decades now. And it's not, if we're going to criticize the Republicans, which they rightfully deserve it, we have to we have to get our house in order too because democrats take the same dirty money and we're never going to be able to defeat this system if we take money from this system you know the old maxim is true you never bite the hand that feeds you nancy pelosi thinks she can throw on a damn kente cloth and take a knee in all of congress and that's supposed to to that's supposed to erase you know, hundreds of years of pain for black people. That's not dealing with the problem. She's not defunding the police. She's not demilitarizing the police. She's not cutting the military budget. She's not putting more money in the hands of working people. All she's doing is something, it's not even symbolic. It's embarrassing and it's it's insulting to think that my culture can be summed up by some damn Kin takeoff around the neck of this rich white woman kneeling in the house. That's what we're dealing with right now on our side as Democrats. And that's why I'm challenging my corporate Democrat, because she's no better. She votes lock, stock, and barrel with these people. And like I said, until we get a critical mass of progressives in Congress, we're never going to change this. Because if we keep voting for the lesser of two evils, guess what? You still get evil.
0: Right. I mean, the, you're absolutely right. I mean, honestly, the performative stuff actually to me is just a slap in the face. Like it's totally like I'd rather you just not even pretend. Like 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 it's it's it really is just it's it's so frustrating because you know you keep mentioning how, you know, uh it's not just Republicans. And 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 you're absolutely right, but here's the thing, you know, I feel like a lot of people on the left we hear from, you know, uh, you know, more centrist Democrats or moderate Dems, they're always like, oh, you're always talking about the Democrats. Why don't you focus on the Republicans? Well, the Republicans are are, are shit. I mean, we know that. We we say that. The left says that. Progressives say that. But that's where the problem is. You also know, and I'm talking about those moderate Dems, you also know that Republicans are shit. We're talking about the Democrats now because you this, don't
1: I, know the Dems I, I, are... The <laughs> message is akin to all lives matter, that's exactly what it is. If my house is on fire, I know my house is on fire. I need to put my ha- house out before I go, I can see the house across the street on fire as well. Right. I can say, hey, that house is on fire. Somebody should deal with that. But I also need to put mine out too. I'm not gonna let mine burn down and then go put that one out and put this one out. I'm not a Republican. Right. I can tell you the crap, they suck, everybody knows it. But if I'm running as a Democrat, if I'm on the Democratic side, then shouldn't I be willing to criticize my own side? I mean, those type of people, those are the all lives matter people. Those are the people who are saying, that's exactly what it is. That's what that argument is. You must get your own house in order first before you talk about anybody else's house. And like I said, we need to get rid of these damn corporate Democrats. I mean, I defy anybody to tell me something that the Democrats have done in the last 30 years that has actually helped working people right i defy it. and i studied this stuff up and down left and right in school not just study on the internet like sitting in class graduate and undergraduate studying this stuff i defy somebody
0: right and when they do when they do give us something it's like a you know it's like just scraps just to keep us you know just to satiate us temporarily so mm, because there's a, a yeah
1: answer. don't give me obamacare which had the public option taken out a public option is a terrible thing anyway but it had the public option taken out don't give me DACA and, and have it be watered down. Listen, Nancy Pelosi, you remember I think it was a summer ago, Nancy Pelosi and Schumer caved to Trump on the DACA thing? They could have stood up to him. They didn't do it. You know what I mean? So we've been talking about these things for 100 years in this country. Nancy Pelosi and Barack Obama, they had the House, the Senate, and the White House. Barack, they could have, Nancy Pelosi could have said, Mr. President, I'm giving you a single-payer health care bill right now. She didn't do it. She could have said, Mr. President, I'm giving you a bill to legalize marijuana. I'm giving you a bill to close for-profit prisons. I'm giving you a bill to cut our military industrial complex. I'm giving you a bill that's going to sort of fund our schools and increase our education budget. None of that happened. Right. None of it happened. So don't tell me you care about me. You know what I mean? If you want, if you cared about black people, we had Black History Month. She didn't wear no kente cloth then. But she, <laughs> I mean, that was like, I was like, the, that was like, Karen meets Wakanda. That whole situation. It was just. I saw it. I I saw it on Twitter. I was like, "What is this?" I showed my wife. I didn't even know what to say.
0: It. it, it, I I mean, you you put it way better than I could. I mean, that's it's it's amazing. Wakanda.
1: That's what that was.
0: Right, right, Now you know. Let's talk about. Let's talk about you know because you're you're you know you're running and other progressives who are running right now are honestly doing something that I think.
1: I'm the only progressive in my race.
0: Oh, no, no, no. I mean other progressives I've talked to on this show. Not in your district. Oh. Yeah, yeah. No, don't don't worry. I know. <laughs> That's why you're on this show and they aren't. <laughs> yeah. But we'll get to those other people as well because I do want to talk to you about them too. Um, the other progressives I had on this show who are running in other districts and yourself, you know, you guys are running during – honestly, I think this is going to be something – that no one else is going to experience at least for another hundred years. You guys are running during a global pandemic that people, that really the world hasn't seen since, you know, the Spanish flu in 1918 or whenever it was. Um, And we've spoken about how your constituents are are dealing with it. Now I want to know, how has it affected your campaign? Because I can imagine... You had to completely restructure because, you know, the left, when the left runs an insurgent uh, primary campaign, it's completely structured around, you know, on the uh, boots on the ground, grassroots organizing. So I would love to hear how you had to switch things around and what the coronavirus did to your, your race.
1: Well, good thing, you know, we have a lot of volunteers who are very digitally savvy. Yeah, I mean, all the videos and... You know, the town halls and the Zoom calls and all that stuff. And I'm not an old man. I'm 33, but I'm not, you know, that tech savvy. But we really had to restructure everything. I mean, we, we I'll give you an example. To get on the ballot, you know, you have to collect a certain number of signatures. All right. We got right. on the ballot in five days, five even with the shortened period. That's how hard our volunteers were going. We had 200 volunteers out in the community every single day. Just getting signatures, knocking on doors, talking, getting people, you know, amped up about the campaign. And I was out there literally every day with a different group every day. And people are hungry for change. And then coronavirus just put a, a stop to all of that. So we had to quickly switch to everything online, you know. We had to switch to digital fundraising, digital town halls, digital debates, digital meet and greets, you know, text banking, phone banking, all that stuff. We had to start that a lot earlier than we normally would. You know, you usually start text banking and phone banking the last, you know, two, three weeks of a campaign. We started this stuff months ago because we couldn't get out, you know, and the reception has been absolutely amazing. You know, my volunteers, I can't thank them enough. We've gone, we've run through 100,000, you know, individual different numbers in this district calling people, both calling and texting. And we just, we just acquired 60,000 more numbers that we're doing one final push You know, we have a giant text banking, phone banking thing tomorrow. You know, it's a bunch of other groups from around the city, a bunch of progressive groups. And my campaign, we're all getting together. I'm going to do one big, massive phone bank and text bank tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And my volunteers are going out, you know, and the ones who are comfortable going out. We're not making anybody go out. You know, they're slipping, you know, literature under people's doors. They're postering, they're flyering. They're just, they're, they're rocking it. But we had to switch everything. You know what I mean? And my strongest suit is talking to people. You know, I'm not a huge fundraiser. We raised $40,000 this campaign so far, and I am ecstatic about that. Dude, $40,000 for a grassroots campaign? I'll take it any day of the week. Other people have raised more than us because they take corporate money. I mean, it's easy. If I took corporate money, think about it. If I went and got you know a max donation from a Wall Street guy, which is $2,800, and he bundled you know 10 more donations from his friends, that's $28,000. Right now, i have $70,000 raised. But we don't do that kind of stuff because I have integrity. So it made the campaign harder. But guess what? You know, when I went to the Army, my drill sergeant told me something on the second day after he smoked the hell out of us, made us do push-ups, and made us all puke. He said, listen, nobody was ever born on the top of Mount Everest. You get there one step at a time. So the campaign, it got, you know, it got drastically harder. But I know what I'm fighting for. I know that the greatest tree you can plant is one whose shade you'll never sit in. I'm sitting here right now where I am today, and you are where you are today because somebody sacrificed for us before we were even born, before they even knew us. So it's about fighting for the people right now, but it's also about fighting for unborn generations to come so we don't have to have any more black kids or kids of color or women or trans folks have to live in a society that, you know, disrespects them and kills them and doesn't value their humanity.
0: Right, right. And let's let's talk about, you know, also another thing that's going on right now. Well, first, I want to say, there, you know, we, we covered coronavirus and then you mentioned how much you raised, which the second thing we're dealing with on top of coronavirus is a huge economic crisis. M- mil- tens of millions of people in this country are unemployed. So the fact that you were able to raise tens of thousands of dollars amid everything without being able to do traditional, you know, on the you know street talking to people face to face campaigning with this economic crisis in the background is, is very impressive and, and then right. a thir- and then a third thing that's going on because we really are facing a, a multitude of, of events right now is this mass uprising where people are it really is revolutionary. It feels like this moment is certainly different. People are saying enough is enough and there are protests around the world really. Uh, against systemic racism and police brutality, and one of the the really you know, the, one of the ground zero areas there 's many all over the country, but one of the main protest sites has been part, part of your district in in brooklyn so how is how has running while this is all going on uh, with these protests how is that really you know I, I, it has to feel like a a, a real you know, a, a boost in a way in terms of because you have all these people who who uh, are on the uh, uh, your side of the politics, you know, taking action. Uh, progressives, people on the left, out there on the street, and it feels like, you know, I'm sure it feels like, you know, we could we could do this. Look at all these people out there.
1: The hardest thing, you know, in politics is getting people to actually care, to see outside of themselves, to fight for someone they don't know. And they can do that. They can channel all that collective anger and rage and voice, And I said rage on purpose because you should be enraged at what the hell is going on. The hardest thing is to get them to channel that into the ballot box because for so long people have been disenfranchised, they're disenchanted, they think the process is disingenuous, they think their vote doesn't matter and it doesn't count. So the hardest thing for progressives like me is to get them to the ballot box. But seeing what's happening, this stuff is literally happening right down the street from my campaign office, like literally, I live right down the street from the Barclays Center where... The protests organically started. The one we just did, you know, right here in Prospect Park. Right, right. I live free from that. <laughs> the one that happened, you know, right on Parkside in Brooklyn. It's literally a block away from my campaign office. And it marched right down my street every day, literally the street that I live on. So it's, you said that people are, are finally saying enough is enough. Other people besides black folks are finally saying enough is right. enough. Because black people for 400 years have been saying that this was wrong. You know, the slave that that jumped overboard on the Atlantic Passage, they knew it was wrong. They said they had enough, you know, two weeks into the damn journey. So no longer are black people, you know, talking in our echo chamber of pain. Now the world is seeing it because of such an egregious, heinous, dastardly, I don't know enough adjective to describe it, way that a man was killed so callously. But what we saw wasn't just, you know, one police officer with his, neck on the, the, his knee on the neck of one black man, what you saw was literally a manifestation of the state with their knees on the necks of black people and people of color all over this country and marginalized groups all over this country. You saw that man begging and pleading, and that's what people have been doing for decades and generations. Martin Luther King said, we want to be treated as human. Malcolm said, we want to be treated as human. Fannie Lou Hammer said she was sick and tired of sick and tired. Bobby Seale, Huey P. Newton, Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman. I can go on and on and on and on and on about all these people, these black people who have told the state. Frederick Douglass said, what is the 4th of July to a slave? What is true freedom and justice in America unless everybody has it? You know what I mean? So we purport to be a nation where all are born equal. But right now, and I found a document, slavery is still there. Think about that. The Constitution has been amended dozens of times. They never took out slavery. It is still there. The the Three-Fifths Clause is still there in the Constitution. They never took it out. So what does that tell you about America? America is not going to change on her own. She's not going to change by us just yelling. We have to take that action and that anger and channel it into the ballot box, no matter what, because that's how we get change. As we elect people and put people into office that will actually fight for that change.
0: Right, right. And, and you know, uh, speaking on that, and, and we were talking earlier about, you know, uh, the, the performativeness from, from some of our elected officials, where they're, you know, they're, they're doing uh, uh, physical uh, uh, solidarity movements, but I mean, they are elected officials, they could actually change laws and make things happen and pass policy, which they aren't. You know, yesterday, I feel like you know June nineteenth, Juneteenth. You know it was it was something where I feel like more people, like like you said, you know, certain people were waking up. But Black people have always known about this this day. You know, you see online all of a sudden, you know, white celebrities going, "Oh, I didn't even know this was a thing." I mean, I, I mean, I knew it was a thing, but I mean, I'm not even you know. It seems like if I had time on my hands because I had money and was a rich white celebrity, I would have done a little research every now and then and found out that something like this was a, was a a, a, a thing. Um, But, you know, there was something else, though, that really struck me, though. And it was these these corporations all coming out now and saying, we're going to now make June 19th a a a holiday. Uh, And, you know, to me, the most stunning one was Uber saying how their employees would now have off June 19th. And then the disconnect there is that, well, their drivers aren't employees. And most of their drivers are working people of color. So they will not have off June 19th, but, you know, the, the, the white executives who, uh, you know, who are in that tech company, uh, Uber, will have off that date. And it was just amazing to me, you know, at the same time as so many people are waking up to it, there's also, again, this performativeness from the people in power, whether it be in government or in major corporations, and how they're just trying to, you know, save face for the moment.
1: So Let's unpack a few things. One, corporations don't give a damn about people. They're corporations. If they gave a damn, they wouldn't be corporations. They would be nonprofits. They're not. They're corporations. That's number one. Number two, don't tell me what you believe. Show me what you do, and I'll tell you what you believe. Oh, Uber, he wants to give people off for June 19th. How about you let them unionize? How about you give them benefits? How about you give them, you know, more pay? How about you give them worker co-ops where they own part of the company? Oh, we're not going to do that, but we'll give you this day off that, like you said, most of the workers of color won't take off because they're hardworking people. They need the money any damn way. You know, all these corporations, Target and whatever, whatever, and Walmart and everybody, so, oh, we care about you. No, you don't. You do not care about us. You're just doing what you think is expedient. black people of color buying your product that's all you're doing if you actually cared walmart you would pay your workers a living wage if you actually gave a damn amazon you would allow them to unionize but you're not doing any of that you're not doing any of the the metrics that actually mean anything you're doing symbolic gestures symbolic gestures don't mean any damn thing it's like you know what the slave master used to let the slave have a day off on his birthday they would all sing and dance and they would you know the slave master would give him a chicken and let him have an actual whole chicken. And let them you know do it when they got married let them jump the broom the next day you t- you take your ass back to the field and you pick cotton under the threat of the whip it's symbolic it doesn't All mean right. anything don't tell me what you believe show me what you do and I'll tell you what you believe and Dane showed me a damn thing right right,
0: right. right. Now, now let's talk about the um we mentioned them earlier let's talk about the other challengers in your race now you are uh, the only progressive running. And there are other people running them who do. Well, they believe they're progressive, and you know I'd like you to give uh, give you the opportunity to uh, you know anyone who's listening, who is in New York Nine, who might be trying to figure out who they're voting for, uh, still. Which I mean, at this point, I don't know how, but let's say that's that's one of the people listening. Uh, tell them a little bit about what makes you different from those other challengers who are taking on Yvette Clark?
1: Well, I'll tell you right now. The, the first thing that makes me different is integrity. You know, I have integrity. And it's been clear to me since I started running for office. People are willing to sell their integrity for a damn donation. And that's not what I'm willing to do. If you're willing to sell out your community for a $2,800 donation, that's between you and your God. But I would never do that. So I don't take money from the PBA, Police Benevolent Association, the police union lobbyists. I don't take money from real estate executives, Wall Street executives, you know, pharmaceutical executives, the military industrial complex, BlackRock, all these giant banks, any of that money. Every single one of my opponents, Eva Clark, Adam Buckadeco, Hein Deutsch, all of them take that damn corporate money. So again, voting for the lesser of two evils is still going to get you evil. If you do not break this cycle. Right now, we're never going to change because working people and poor people and black people and trans people and LGBTQ people have been talking about this forever. We've been saying that we want equality, we want rights, we want dignity, we want equity and fair pay. We haven't got our own side isn't listening. Even right now, with all the voices in the street, they're still not listening because they're not beholden to you. They're beholden to the big and the rich and the powerful. That's why nothing is getting done. That's what makes me different from everybody else in this race because I believe in the hard right over the easy wrong. You know, I'll tell you a story. When I first got in this race, a guy approached me and said there's some guys who wanted to open up a casino in Manhattan and they'd be willing to bundle and fund my campaign if I would get on board with them. I said, hell no. That's not the type of person I am. He asked me, would I take charter school money? I said, no. He's like, will you take Wall Street money? I said, no. He's like, you're going to make this extremely difficult for yourself. I said, I understand that. But at the end of the day, I have to look myself in the mirror. I have to be able to walk out in my community and then look at me and know, you know, Isaiah fought for us to the end, no matter what the outcome, and he didn't sell us out. So that's the type of person that they would want in office who wouldn't sell them out because we've been sold out for so long. And a lot of black politicians, Yvette Clark included, they use their blackness as a buttress to any criticism. But like my grandmother always said, all skin folk ain't kin folk. And this district is Shirley Chisholm's district. Her motto was unbought and unbossed. She said, if they don't give you a a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. Folks in my community can't even afford a damn folding chair. We have no seats at the table because the corporations are already there. You know what I mean? So we're on the precipice of turning a corner in this country. We have to decide which way we're going to go. Are we going to go into full-on fascism and the plutocracy? Are we going to actually turn this big-ass ship that is America around and start making every single policy center around poor people and working people and marginalized communities and black people? Are we going to finally do that? Because America is a big ship, just like the Titanic, and you see The iceberg ahead, the iceberg is income inequality, it's racial injustice, it's housing insecurity, food insecurity, it's climate change, it's all these things, it's staring us dead in the face. So we have to start turning now before it's too late because every great empire before us has fallen. The Romans, the Assyrians, the Greeks, the Turks, the Ottomans, they've all fallen because they did not heed the word of the people. They did not deal with what they needed to deal with internally and they spread themselves too thin militarily. We are are headlong down that road right now.
0: Right. Right, and, and you know, what? I want to take a little bit because, because you know, we we were discussing earlier before we went live, basically how you know this is going to be an election unlike any other because of all the reasons we just discussed, and it's going to be really hard. You know, anyone who's saying that you know they know how it's going to turn out, you know, they're they're it's you can't. It's just going to be one of those elections. But last time, uh, one of your challenger, one of the other challengers in your race, one of your other opponents, uh, Adam uh, Bunkadeko, he did run against Evette Clark previously and he came very close to beating her. So I wanna I, I wanna focus on him actually, because I view I you know, in terms of anyone who wants Isaiah James to win, I think, you know, they can't just look at Avette Clark as as one of the, 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 the as has the main uh person the main obstacle. It's also Adam. So I do want to focus a little bit just on him in terms of, you know, what what specifically uh, you know, you mentioned a few things in general, but I want to make it clear specifically to him what, what he's done that would make you the better choice over him. I, I, I know you mentioned a few, but I want listeners to really know that uh, uh, who the things you mentioned are attached to.
1: So he's lied. He's basically, not basically, he has 100% lied about who he is and what he does. He, he, he purports himself to be this grassroots organizer, but he worked at the Empire State Development Corporation, which anybody knows is the business arm for New York State. That—that that, Those are the people who come in and up zone communities, kick everybody out and build giant condos. That's number one. Number two, he's a Wall Street guy. He worked for Lazard, one of the biggest banks in the world. And now all of a sudden he's found his grassroots calling. God bless him for that. Number two, he takes that dirty money. He's just running to be a younger version of Yvette Clark. And Yvette Clark, at least she admits to taking the dirty money. She she makes, she makes no qualms about it. She, she says she's not going to stop taking it. So I'll give her that one. At least she's honest about that. But the fact that this brother is lying about it, and that's what's so dangerous. If you're willing to lie to my face, remember, he's running to represent me. I'm running to represent him. So he's running to represent me. And as his potential constituent, if he were to win, he's lying directly to my face about who he is and what he does. One, I don't take that lightly. And two, you don't value my intelligence and you don't value the hard work that people in this community are doing if you're willing to lie your way to the top. I can't listen. Where I come from, man, your word is truly your bond. You know, if I'm on the the mountain in Afghanistan or something and my battle buddy next to me needs to take a sleep, go to sleep, I say, hey, brother, go to sleep. I got your back. He's literally putting his life in my hands, literally, and I'm doing the same to him. So my word really is my bond, and I don't take that lightly. So the fact that people can just lie so callously and just sell out the community so callously it's it's a bad, bad sign of what they'll do if they actually get to power. If you're willing to lie your way to power, lo and behold, what the hell you will do if you actually get a vote?
0: Right, right. And have you have you had a debate with? Did you were you able to get a oh, debate? No. How did, how did that, like, okay, great all right and Yvette Clark w- was in in them
1: she she was she was all but one
0: okay, good because I've spoken to to some of these other brand new congress uh 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 endorsed candidates, and some of them are having a real they still haven't had a single debate with uh, who they're challenging, so glad to see that I that know, happened.
1: Talk, talking about uh Sean and, and New York Five. I know Sean personally. i actually I called Sean today. Shiny. I called him literally today. Right. So I don't know if Gregory Meeks won't, you know, debate him because Gregory Meeks is he's another one of the terrible ones. You know what I mean? So we've had five debates and folks can go out there. We've had a New York One debate, a News Twelve debate, Shirley Chisholm debate, Sunrise Movement debate, and um a news not News Max, but uh Ben Ben Max from I can't remember the news organization. But if you look up the debates, they're there and folks will be I I would highly encourage people to look them up.
0: Right, I want to make sure everyone knows that there's debates. Also, uh, Mel, who's uh, taking on uh, Grace Ming in New York 6, he also hasn't gotten into debate. I mean, it is, it is stunning. Like, like you know, that... I mean, Yvette Clark did show up for, for debates, so, so, you know, I, I guess I could give her that one thing. But, you know, it seems like the bare minimum as an elected official you can do is show up for these debates. Like, it, to not even be able to do that is, is, is just...
1: You know. Where were they? I mean, we were all on quarantine. They only came back in session twice. Right. Where were they? How can you not show up for They. debate? Oh, you're supposed to have, you're supposed to live in your district. So right. either you live in the district and you just didn't come out for the debate, or you don't live in this district or have a district, here in Washington somewhere. They went back to Washington twice to vote. We've been on quarantine for the four months. Lockdown for four. Months. Where the hell these people been at?
0: Right. Well, hell. I mean, this year you don't even need to be in uh, in your your no. district. Exactly. You could you could be you could be on a beach in, uh, in in California if you want and show up for the debate this year.
1: Exactly. So there's no excuse.
0: <laughs> so you know I, I've spoken to this is this is this is one question I really enjoyed asking all the candidates because there's always some sort of insane answer. Um, you know, and, and my favorite example I've gotten so far is from uh, Lauren Ashcraft, who's primarying uh, uh, Caroline Maloney in uh, in Manhattan, and it is what has been the you know the the most ridiculous way that oh, and in your case, being that there's multiple challengers, how the incumbent's campaign or one of your other opponents' campaigns have tried to go after you and your campaign. It, with Ashcraft's example. They go after her because they say she has ties to the financial sector, and her ties to the financial sector was that in her career for I'm one, Lord. yeah, for one single year she worked as a project manager for a bank. Ooh, <laughs> I mean, they make it sound like she's got ties to Jamie Dimon or something. Like she's in there in the you know sitting down with him talking you know how they can uh, screw people out of. Uh, their mortgages and foreclose on homes, you know, but that's, you know, so what has, what have you been taking in this campaign as uh the progressive challenger?
1: Nothing. They, they haven't? haven't come out. Wow. Listen, no, for a fact, they've gone after each other. If you come for, if you come for me, you better pack a lunch because it's going to be an all day affair. I'm telling you that right now. And they know that the way I'm talking to you, if folks go out there and watch those debates, they know, don't come for Isaiah James unless he sends for you, because I'm not the one to play with. I'm a staunch advocate for folks in my community. I'm fighting like hell to win this race. So they know. They have none of them. None of them. One, well, in a debate, Adam Buccadeco said I was a liar and I've done nothing. You know, Literally he said, he's like, you have done nothing in public service. And I'm like, dude, while you were in, we're the same age. So we're both the same. I think I'm a year older than him. While he was, you know, partying in undergrad, at 18 years old, I was in Baghdad. While he was in his junior year of college in undergrad, I was on my second tour in in Mosul, Iraq. While he was at Harvard Business School, I was in the mountains of Afghanistan. And while he was working at the czar, I was being a community organizer and working with veterans. So he said I had done nothing, but my record speaks for itself.
0: Right. It's also a bizarre line of attack for a challenger. Even even though he was going after you with it, that's a bizarre line of attack for a challenger because if we're going by amount, just, just raw time spent in public service, I mean, you're not beating the incumbent. If that's your, you know, if that's the... She, she's been... Uh, how long has Yvette Clark been uh, a representative?
1: 14 years this election.
0: I mean, I mean, she's... First of all, it's... I, I, I mean, I, I remember when uh, uh, Sean told me that uh, Gregory Meeks was something like 20-something years or something like that. And I was just like, Christ, you know? But, like, it's just a bizarre thing to go by. Even if you didn't have any public service record, the fact that you've done the work and you are a rounded individual with ideological beliefs and and you're ready to get things done and you've shown that you're a fighter for the causes that you believe in, uh, a challenger, in my opinion, shouldn't really... I mean. What if you just woke up to the realities of, wow, I can do this and actually defeat the people who failed me. Just really bizarre for a a challenger to argue that against you. Just someone wasn't thinking that attack through, were they? (laughs)
1: Listen, I've been shot. I've been blown up. Eight years, two months, 29 days I spent in the military. I'm 90% disabled. What is somebody going to say to me that I've not heard before? What is somebody going to do to me that has already not been done to me? Not only that, I'm a black man. I'm a six foot eight black man in America. I'm not scared of anything. You know what mm-hmm. I mean, so I'm not worried about being attacked. By I, I, I,
0: I love that. I love so let me, let me ask you this actually, because I, I I you know you you would be the expert in this area, and especially as someone who's coming from the left, who has this experience in the military, I would love for you to go a little bit into. You know, what you think, you know, let's, uh, you know, Congressman Isaiah James gets, you know, you go to Washington, you have this background in the military, you have this, you know, this, this leftist ideology. What is something that you would advocate for specifically within the military industrial complex to change that uh, with, with, you know, coming from your political background?
1: Uh, Good question. So first, we need to cut our defense budget. Our defense budget right now, with all the contractors and subcontractors included, is around $790 billion a year. Our Department of Education's budget is around $70 billion a year. So literally, we're spending 11 times more on bombs and bullets than we are on books and backpacks. So we need to cut it, and we need to cut it to pre 9-11 9-11 levels. We need to close all these bases that we have around—we literally are an empire around the world. We need to bring our troops home so we can use that money to, to fund education. Also, we need to audit the damn Pentagon, because trillions of dollars have gone up in smoke. And nobody's—everybody—listen, Every listen, if you think the pharmaceutical industry is big, which it is, the banking industry is big, which it is, the military-industrial complex is massive. 55% of discretionary spending in this country is on our defense budget. Over half our discretionary spending goes towards the military. That's how big it is. We need to cut it to pre-9-11 levels. And it's it's different for somebody else. I'm going to show you something real quick, babe. My, um my uniform out of the closet, please. I'm going to show you something. It's like when AOC, when she tries to talk about the military budget, they can say, well, what does she know? You know, she's just a bartender from Queens. When I try to talk about the military budget, it's a different story. You see what I'm saying? I love that, yeah. And got the T-shirt to prove it. I got enough damn medals on my chest like a Christmas tree. You got awards from the president and everything. And I've been inside that Leviathan, and I understand how corrupt it is. And I understand that we are literally shooting our resources out the barrel of a gun to kill poor black people around the world and poor brown people around the world. I didn't join the military as a step up. I joined the military as a way out. I have friends right now who are dead, who are in jail doing life bids right now for selling dope because they had no other avenues of escape. Right. And that's it's like that for a lot of people. The military recruits from poor neighborhoods. In our neighborhood, there are eight recruiting stations. You don't see them on, in Chelsea. You don't see them right. in the Upper East Side and the Upper West Side. Right. But they're in right. Brownsville. They're in Bed-Stuy. They're in Flatbush. They're in East New York. They're everywhere over here. They're up in the Bronx. So we need to we need to stop that. I also I am you know on the board of this this veterans group called the Black Veterans Project, which, you know, we are looking at the systematic racism that's inside the military that has gone unchecked for years. And, you know, bringing America's story of her black military members to the forefront. You know, a lot of people don't know the first person to die in defense of this country in the Revolutionary War was a black man. His name was Christmas Addicts. He was the first person killed. People don't know about the Harlem Hellfighters. People don't know about the Buffalo Soldiers. I say that to say this. Our military budget is grossly bloated. My opponent, Yvette Clark, votes for that damn budget every single year. We are close to spending a trillion dollars on the military. Imagine what we could do if we had that budget allocated towards education or housing or health care so we can have single-payer health care. You know what? Take all that off the table. Imagine if we devoted those resources to cancer research, where we would be in this country. So when I get there, I'm going straight after the military budget. And like I said, what are they going to say to me or do to me that hasn't already been done?
0: I mean, to to me, that that those those five minutes you just spent right there uh if if i was questioning who i was voting for i would be you would have i'm sold but you, you got me that's it i mean you know if i lived in your district that would have been my vote for sure uh i mean and when i
1: get to Congress, i'll wear my uniform on the floor of the house and then then they'll be like well what do you know about the military I'm Like a little bit of something <laughs> <laughs> bit.
0: right yeah i mean and in that and that uh let's stick with this actually because speaking of mil- uh, the military the militarization of our police force, I mean, we're seeing it out on the streets, especially in, in your district right now with, with what's going on with the protests. Um, you know, I'd love to, and we've already spoken a bit about the protests, but I'd love for you to specifically uh, go a little bit into, you know, your feelings on, you know, the, the police having this, well, first of all, the police having a, this sort of budget, and then also them getting this sort of equipment for, you know, you know the whole idea is that a police officer, you know, the idea of a police, this has never been the fact, but the idea of the police is, yeah, you have these people in your community who get to know everyone and can make sure everyone's, you know, protect and serve, but of course, we know how it really works. But I'd love to get your thoughts on the militarization of the police.
1: Okay, so I'm, there's a lot of stuff you said there, so let's unpack it. First off, there's a, if you know where we get policing started in England, you know, that the, the community they used to live in were called shires and the people who were, you know, to keep the peace for the king, working for the king, the overseer, were called Reeves. And that's where our word sheriff come from, Shire Reeve. That's where sheriff come from. That's where policing started, you know, over there. Policing in America started from runaway slaves being caught by people who were paid by their masters to bring back property. They were literally slave catchers. Those were the first police in America to protect property. That's number two. Number three... If you look at the police force, there's something called the 1033 program that allows them to use, to be able to buy surplus military equipment. There's nothing wrong with this equipment. I've seen this equipment. When they say surplus, that means a a company got a new juicy contract, so they just built something new. That's why we have the F-22 Raptor. Never going to see combat. We don't even need it. That was a $200 billion contract. And all those F-15s, we just sell them to another country. So that 1033 program allows the NYPD to buy literally military equipment. I could go to those vehicles right now, open the door, flip all the damn switches, and drive it away. Because I know exactly this: the RG-33, the MRAPs, the HAGA, all those same vehicles are ones I used in combat a few years ago. We have a standing Army, we have a standing Air Force, Marine Corps, Navy, and Coast Guard. The NYPD aren't repelling against any attack. This is not Red Dawn. Why the hell do they need military equipment? That military equipment is to keep you and I in check. It is not to repel against some foreign nation attacking us. So that should tell you right then and there that the police are not here to be our friends. They're here to keep us in check. So we need to end that 1033 program. We need to cut off all federal funds for the police departments. The NYPD's budget is more than we spend on homelessness, more than we spend on, on youth training programs, on diversionary programs. The NYPD's budget is $6 billion damn dollars. Think about that. $6 billion. Why? If de Blasio touts that crime is the lowest it's ever been, so why are we putting more police on it? He hired 500 new cops last summer to police, police stations in black and brown communities at the cost of $250 million. But he wants to stand up and say he has a black wife and a black son and a black daughter. Then act like it. Don't put police in our neighborhood. You're going right now in Crown Heights and East Flatbush. There are police towers that you know, go up 30 feet in the air. That's siege tactics. That's literally a guard tower. I've sat in guard towers in Iraq. That's a damn guard tower you're under constant surveillance. And when I talk about police, we also need to understand. It's not just the NYPD 911. I'm talking about ICE, which is a police force. Right. I'm talking about the Department of Homeland Security, which is a police force. I'm talking about all these alphabet agencies out here that are police forces of the state that are used in quasi, you know, situations to suppress people and round people up and throw people in jail. We need to end this stuff. You know, we literally live in a police state. And I think it's evident seeing now. The NYPD came out to peaceful protests and showed the world why people are protesting. They, they made our case for us. When I was at the protest, they made our case for us of why we should defund the damn police and use that money for more mental health counselors, for more mental health services in this country, for more after-school programs, diversionary programs, for more drug treatment programs. They made the case for us. So now it's time to put people in office who are going to fight to make sure they don't have the damn money to terrorize black and brown communities anymore.
0: Right. You know, I've said this before in the show just this week, you know, in terms of uh, de Blasio, uh, you know, if, you know, if if he is the, I mean, we know, we know now, but no, if he was the progressive that he said he was, and he actually came in to change things in New York the way he claimed he would, and The system, for example, let's take the police. The NYPD was so entrenched in the system that even the mayor of New York couldn't get the reforms he claims he wanted or change the force in the way he claims he could. He still has that power, which I mentioned earlier, that politicians, individual politicians always have. That's why I think this conversation we're having is so important because you're showing, I think you're really showing people you have this power. You're you're there to do that. You have the power of the bully pulpit. And he could, if, if Bill de Blasio couldn't do what he wanted to do, even as the mayor of New York, he still has that power to go out there and say, the NYPD, the, the the police unions, they hold so much power over the city that even I, the mayor, couldn't do what I set out to do. And I want you all to know this. And I'm going to tell you what happened and how this ended up this way, and what we can do, hopefully, to change that, because I can't do it alone, even as the mayor. But, I mean, the guy, the guy, his daughter got arrested at a protest, and I'm sorry, I truly, I don't know if anyone could believe this, but I truly do not believe that that was a coincidence. Uh, his daughter was targeted. Someone, someone there in the NYPD saw the mayor's daughter and said, we're going to arrest her, for sure. Uh, but, I mean, the fact that he doesn't do this is just baffling to me. And it really goes to show just how important having someone in there, just with even the guts to say these things, uh, you know, it means so much, really, to have an elected official like that.
1: let's, uh, Let's unpack that again. So what you're saying is a situation that does not exist. New York City has something called a strong mayoral system, where the mayor actually has a lot of power. You know, for folks out there who want to know, It's a book called The Politics of New York City. Read it. I studied it when I was a freshman in college. The New York mayoral system is very strong. That's why the hell did it take... Listen, we saw Eric Garner get choked to death. Daniel Pantaleo drew a public salary for five years. Do you know how infuriating that is as a black taxpayer to know that my money is going to a man that murdered a large black man who looks just like me. Mayor Bill de Blasio knows the chokehold is outlawed. He could have fired Daniel Pantaleo right then right. and there. You know what, if not, he could have fired him. There's no there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He could have stood up to the police union right then and there. He can fire the police chief whenever the hell he wants. He is the mayor of New York City, the richest city in the United States of America the most powerful city in the United States of America. He could have done these things. So for anybody out there who thinks he couldn't, let me disabuse you of that notion right now. He was lying to all of us. That's called placating, patting us on our back, saying you're on our side, but when you go behind those doors in those smoke-filled rooms, you don't give a damn. He's lying. He could have done that stuff. Right. A, a Case in point, he put the curfew in effect. He didn't have to do that. Right. He could have not done that. He put more cops on the street. He signed the executive order that put them out there. He didn't have to do that. The same way he said, okay, I'm ending the curfew. See how strong the mayoral system is? The fact that he said, you know what? We need 500 new cops to police subways. He did that. Right. So if he can do it, he can undo it. So that tells you he's not on our side. He's lying to us.
0: Right. Right. I guess what I was getting at was, you know, with, with bringing up his daughter is I, I do think there is, I mean, I agree with you totally that he, he, what, what he wants to do is, is not what he said he wants to do. Uh, but at the same time, I do think there is something about the police uh, across the country. But I think, the, I mean, just look at how the NYPD, uh, the police unions, the uh, Benevolent Association, when they, when they get out there in front of their mic, it's very like mafioso-esque, very mafia-esque. And, you know, I, I do wonder if some of these, you know, politicians who speak out, who do speak out against the police, worry about their their safety and their family's safety. And especially with, you know, Bill de Blasio, with, with his daughter and his son, you know. But but again, I, I agree with you. If he wanted to do these things, there are things like the, the firing Daniel Pantaleo would not have resulted in, in any, you know, I, he could have easily done that, I think.
1: But uh, because, no, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I've seen the New York City charter. He could have done it right (laughs) yeah i mean when you go to graduate school and study politics one of the things you have to read is the new york city charter also you have to read the new york city budget i'm telling you he could have done it he didn't do it so that should tell you all you need to know right then there
0: right it's also stunning to me that these these reforms that are coming in now from cuomo and uh, i guess actually most of them i've heard from cuomo in terms of uh reforms for the the entire uh police throughout the state uh it, it took this killing uh, this uh, of, of George Floyd, police, this police killing of George Floyd in Minnesota uh, for for this to happen because people actually went out there and destroyed some property whereas you know we had Eric Garner right here at the hands of an NYPD officer and I guess just because people didn't get uh, well people who showed up didn't get to the point of causing physical damage to property, we didn't get those same reforms. Now, now, granted, these reforms were all, in my view, bullshit, because, I mean, a lot of these reforms have already, are already practically the law here, and it doesn't really matter. Like, chokeholds in New York City by the NYPD were already banned when Eric Garner had the life choked out of him. But still, they were scared enough to at least, again, performatively do some reforms over that killing because... Some property got damaged. Whereas in Eric Garner's case, even though the man was a New Yorker, New York City resident, a constituent of Bill de Blasio, uh, you know, it wasn't enough to really uh, uh, set things in motion. It's, it's gross to me, really.
1: Like I said, it's just placation. I mean, the reforms they've done are surface reforms. The fact that you have to pass an anti chokehold bill is a summation of the problem. If you have to pass a bill saying it's illegal to choke somebody to death in your profession, then maybe we shouldn't look at that with the people. We should just start looking at the profession. If your profession has to be told not to choke people, they don't have to pass anti choke bills in school. Right. They, don't in <laughs> they don't have to pass them in hospitals. They don't have to pass them in any other, in, in, you know, in nursing practices. Why is it that your profession, we have to say that, you know what, You shouldn't choke people to death. Why is it in your profession, you have to wear a body camera on you? Which does nothing, by the way, because they still, Eric Garner was killed on camera. George Floyd was killed on camera. Tamir Rice was killed on camera. Philando Castile was killed on camera. What Cameras don't do any damn thing. We need to defund the police and take them out of the neighborhoods because people, well, the argument that I hear from those who don't agree with me is, well, black neighborhoods have more crime. Black neighborhoods have more crime because they have more police. If all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Police will find crime to justify their existence. That's why there's more crime. And then when your blackness is criminalized, then you're automatically a suspect. That's what stop and frisk was. Ta-da! That's how the system works.
0: All right. Isaiah James, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I want to let you know, actually, um, maybe this shows that I'm a bad older brother, but I didn't realize that my, my sister is in your she lives in your district and she found out that you were on the show and she texted to let me know that she actually has already voted for you so oh. you're you're getting the votes buddy you're 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 doing it
1: well, there we go um, listen again thank you for having me on you know what i mean uh my wife is sitting out here with me she, like, this this is our apartment we tiny little apartment you know what i mean and my wife's a teacher so this is her Her studio, her classroom, you know, if I show you this right here, she teaches, She teaches. what grade do you teach? 3K Pre-K. 3K Pre-K, so these are all her little shapes for her Uh, classrooms and and stuff like that. So by by night, this is my congressional interview studio by day, (laughs) this is her virtual (laughs) classroom. You know what I mean? And she's been sitting out here listening to me the whole time. I thank you for having me on, man. Like, I, this is not, before, it's so hard for, Grassroots campaigns to get any kind of exposure. You know what I mean? So the fact that you would have me on and reach out to me to be on the show, it means a lot. You know what I mean? So I want folks out there to know June 23rd, Tuesday is election day. If you have your ballot, all you got to do is fill in for all the Bernie delegates. Check Isaiah James. If you live in Senate District, I think 25, vote for Jabari because I know Jabari. All those things. You know what I mean? Get that ballot in the mail, or if you choose to vote in person, vote for for Isaiah for Congress, Isaiah James. Go to our website, IsaiahforCongress.com. We're having a huge, massive phone bank tomorrow. So if you want to sign up to be brought on, we got like 200 people dialing 60,000 numbers tomorrow. So if you want to sign on, please join us. Um, All the same social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Isaiah for Congress, and if you I feel really weird asking people for donations, but if you got five yeah. or ten bucks to chip right. in, by all means. If you don't, don't feel bad because I'm broke too. But you can still follow me on social and amplify the message. So thanks for having me on. F-
0: Farah, who is running for state assembly, is she also in that area, that district in terms of... Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just want to make sure I get... I re- I,
1: vote for Farah as well. Yeah, I want to make sure I,
0: I want to try to get... I'm, I've been trying so hard this week to to you know reach out and try to get as many... Uh, you know, people running from the left. It's just whether it's uh, citywide office, state office, or, or or congressional U.S. Congress, which you've been trying. And also tell your tell your wife I appreciate what she does because my son just graduated from pre K, and I can oh. I, I can
1: tell you, uh, my wife, my wife's right here. Come don't fix your hair. She wouldn't fix her hair. <laughs> oh, she I always just- try to fix her hair. You got fix your hair. <laughs> Listen, Yay, I
0: graduated. 3K. Yeah, I just want to, I just want to move, you're on split screen right now, so move the camera over a little bit more, because she's just at it there we go. I just want to say, maybe, you know, second, third, fourth, maybe the older kids had a fun, easy time doing the Zoom schooling during this whole coronavirus thing, but from experience, uh, you know, I... I Pre-K, I'm, I'm guessing nursery and kindergarten to That age range where the whole point of school is basically basically socialization with other kids their age, this has been impossible. So I could only imagine how it's been for teachers like you. So really, thank you so much for all you do. I mean, I could only, jeez, this has been an experience for me. So you know, my
1: lovely wife will always talk about. And that's all my right. lovely husband. All right. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, man.
0: Thanks so much. And where can people find you again? I want to just—I want that to be the last thing they hear. So they stop listening to the show and they go off and follow you and go to your website to, to, to chip
1: in. So, Isaiah for Congress. I-S-I-A-H for Congress.com. You Google Isaiah James Congress. Just Google that. First, last name Congress. Everything will pop up.
0: You'll awesome. Thank you so much, Isaiah. Good luck, Thank really. Take care. Thank you. All right. Have a good night. All right, ladies and gentlemen. That was a that was a really great interview. Um Isaiah James, I I you know the the brand new Congress slate this year is is really fantastic. Um I mean, obviously they, you know, a, lo- a lot of these uh organizations that that uh support grassroots left candidates always pick some great candidates, but I don't think there's ever been such a strong entire slate as there is this year in New York. Um, it's just really well-rounded. Uh, we have great candidates running throughout the city. Uh, I can only imagine, you know, I really, there's been great candidates all over the country too. And, and I think that, you know, the, the, you know, that really is what makes me hopeful for the left because there's always been, you know, people say the left, you know, Never gets the big wins. Well, if more people run, of course, the left is going to lose. Insurgent campaigns run by grassroots uh, fundraising, it's always going to be harder. So it's going to be harder for them to win. But when you have so many people running and so many great candidates at that, the odds of someone winning are greater. And the odds of that candidate being so good, you know, it's just really you know, heartening to see. Um, Patreon.com slash Matt Binder. Uh you could support the show by subscribing and becoming a patron. Uh we're almost some we got a few patrons who helped us. We're still not back at the uh the <laughs> the goal, but we're 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 hanging in there. Um Patreon.com slash Matt Binder. Uh follow me on Twitter at Matt Binder, follow me uh f- subscribe to the YouTube channel, YouTube.com slash Matt Binder, Instagram Matt Binder, search for anywhere you, Matt Binder and you'll find me. Uh Doomed Pod dot com for the audio version of the show, the podcast, iTunes, Google Play, wherever podcasts are. Tell your favorite podcaster, YouTuber, about the show. Tell them you want them on it. Tell them you want me on theirs. You know how you know the drill at this point. Um, there may be now. We're getting down to the wire. June twenty third, this Tuesday, is the New York, uh, uh, the New York uh, primary. Uh, the last chance to uh, get that vote in in New York. So I I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to do one more, but no promises on this one cuz we're getting down to the wire and you know tomorrow is Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. And then, you know, Monday is the day before. And you know, people might be wanting to work down to the very wire and might not want to, you know, I'm going to see what what I can do. So this might have been the last of the primary shows might not have not, might not have. So stay tuned to the, you know, the the my social media channels and you'll find out whether there's another primary-related show. Uh, Without any further ado, though, uh, the people who make this show possible by subscribing to the Patreon channel, Abigail T., Adam Q, Alan B, Andrew C, Andrew H, Angela, R.E.R., Baka, Ben, Benji, Bobby, M, Brian S, Brosnan, Champagne Kame, Chris, F, Christine H, Cindy G, Colin R, Connor R, C.T., uh, Cul-de-sac, Cyber Snowstorm, D, Dan K, Dank Uger, Dave K., David Z, Daya, Douglas V, Dragonslayer, Eugene B, Froz K, Free Hat, FTW, Graham C, Greywind, Greg D, Greg D with two G's, Grim, Hatesh, Igor D, Jack D, Jacob W, Jamison Test, Janelle A, Jasmine H, Jeremy M, JLS, John B, John S. Jonathan B, Joseph H, Joseph R, Joyce M, Justin S, Katie S, Kaushal, Kyle, Lisa D, Mariah, Mark S, Maddie J, Max W, me, Melissa M, Mitch V, Michael B, Michael J, Michael M, Mr. Denks, NS, Nick, Nicole A, Namda Net, Style, Odeth, Paul M, Penelope D, Qster, Dad, Remy, Ryan, Scott R, Seth K, Sean H, Sheena A, Silicon. B- uh, Steven R, Steven S, Steve A, Tammy G, Hypervisor, This Is Not Pizza, Tina M, Tom M, Why That Tie Guy, Utopian, Zach M, and Zoe G. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, wonder how Trump's rally went in the end. Gonna go jump in and find out. Uh, again, uh, we are skipping the patron shows this week. The patron only half of the shows this week, uh, so I can do as many shows as possible with uh, uh, leftist and progressive candidates. Uh, we will be back on the regular schedule uh, right after the primary shows, with you know interviews and um, the patron half of the show. And other cool stuff in the works, like the uh, the watch party shows we've been discussing and testing out. With uh, you know, We did one with Jared. We did one with Leslie. Uh, Jared of Right Wing Watch and Leslie of, um, of Struggle Session. So uh, a lot of good stuff coming up. Patreon.com slash Matt Binder. YouTube.com slash Matt Binder. Doomedpod.com. Folks, see you all next time on Doomed.